morning. Years ago, my wife and I were visiting a friend's house, and our friend is a gracious host, brewed us some coffee, and my wife likes her coffee sweet, and so she mixes in some milk, and she takes the sugar jar and pours some of it into her mug. But as she's about to take her first sip, our friend says, whoa, 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 don't drink that. That's not sugar, that's MSG. MSG, like monosodium glutamate, uh, the salty stuff that Chinese restaurants go out of their way to tell you that they don't cook with. Uh, Apparently, uh, I learned this that night, Uh, MSG is small white crystals. It looks just like sugar. And so it looked like a jar of sugar. It appeared to be a jar of sugar. Uh, Most people except maybe those of you who keep a jar of MSG in your kitchen, most people would have thought that it was sugar. But it was most definitely not sugar. Things aren't always as they appear to be. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14. Before we jump into the text, let's remind ourselves of where we've been in this ongoing narrative in 2 Samuel. Uh, King David, because of his adultery with Bathsheba, his subsequent murder of her husband Uriah, although he has genuinely repented of his sin, although he's been forgiven by God, uh, God spares his life, uh, David is suffering some of the earthly consequences of those sins, uh, just like God said he would. That started with what we looked at two weeks ago, with the death of the first child born to him in Bathsheba. And then last week we saw the beginning of the fulfillment of how the sword would never depart from his house. How his family would be marked by conflict and chaos, the whole Amnon and Tamar incident, followed by Absalom killing his brother Amnon and then fleeing for his life. Well, it's in the midst of that chaos... Uh, One son, Abnon, is dead. The other son, Absalom, he's in exile. Uh, That's where we pick it up this morning. And so, uh, let's just start by reading the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 14. It's a bit of a long chapter, and so I'm going to ask you to use your powers of concentration to follow along as closely as you can as I read. But hear the word of the Lord. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. 
And so they would destroy the air also. And thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words into the mouth, into the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. My lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the crest of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And he said to his servants, 
See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. It appeared to be a jar of sugar, but it was not a jar of sugar, because things aren't always as they appear to be. That seems to be the running theme in our chapter here, a theme of things that appear to be one thing, but in fact turn out to be entirely different. We see that first in this story involving the woman of Tekoa in verses 1 through 24 what appears to be a widow's dilemma. The wise woman of Tekoa, Joab sends her to David on a mission. Look at verse 3. Joab put the words in her mouth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to David. I want you to pretend to be a widow, a mourning widow, and I want you to present this case to him for his judgment. Apparently people who had Uh, Difficult and unresolved cases would sometimes bring their cases all the way to the king for justice. And that's what's happening here. Kind of. Remember, things aren't always as they appear to be. This is a made-up case presented with the sole purpose of trying to convince David that what he's doing with regards to his son Absalom, keeping him in exile, that's not right. Basically, all of this is part of Joab's scheme to get Absalom back to Jerusalem. And so here we have a fictitious case presented to King David to make a separate point by analogy. And in that sense, it's very similar to what the prophet Nathan did to David back in chapter 12. You remember that case? There's two men. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. And the rich man takes the poor man's sheep. And now David's ruling in that case, as the Lord lives, the man who does this deserves to die, but was really judging himself. Because he himself was the rich man in the story. Well, here you've got another fictitious case, again involving two men. But here it's the widow's two sons. In this story, one day these two sons go out into the field, they basically get into a fight, and one of them kills the other. But now the surviving son's life is also in jeopardy because others in the clan are seeking to avenge the death by killing him. This is the principle of the avenger of blood in the Old Testament. Now there's all these rules and regulations and laws that govern that process of the avenger of blood. But it's a big problem for this widow personally 
Not only because it's her own son whose life is at stake, but also because he is the only heir. He's the only remaining son left in the family. He's the only one who can carry on her dead husband's name. That was a big deal in Israel back then. Look what she says in verse 7. They would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so she pleads for David's help. Please, O king, do something about this before they kill the heir. And so David says, verse 10, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Translation, don't worry, I've got your back on this. But not satisfied with just that. She presses him to make an oath, and so he does. He swears an oath by the Lord. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And so David, as the king of Israel, ruling as the highest human court in the land, David essentially extends a judicial pardon to this woman's son. Yes, he has killed his brother. But by the word of the king, no vengeance is going to be taken on him. He will be restored. But then, as soon as he renders the verdict, just like in chapter 12, remember how as soon as David rendered his verdict there, Nathan basically turns it around on him, or you are the man. It's basically what the woman does here. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. She's clearly referring to David's situation with the currently banished Absalom. This is basically her version of you are the man. Why are you giving a pardon to my son who killed his brother while refusing to give a pardon to your son, Absalom? Who killed his brother. God, verse 14, devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast and so you, David, need to bring back Absalom so that he will not remain an outcast. And so that right there, right, that's the entire reason for this ruse. As she presents what appears to be a widow's dilemma to make this larger point on behalf of Joab about bringing Absalom home. But she doesn't want David to know that. She doesn't want David to know that that was the real reason why she came to him. She wants David to keep thinking that the real reason she came was to present her own case. And so if you look at verses 15 through 18, she goes right back to talking about her own son and the people who are making her afraid. Joab probably told her beforehand, Listen, even after you deliver the punchline, even after you make the point about Absalom, I want you to keep your disguise on. Keep the appearances up. Keep up the charade. Make sure he doesn't figure out that I sent you. But David, I'm sure he might have fallen for the same trick twice, right? Once with Nathan and again with this woman. But he's still pretty sharp, at least in this sense. He realizes that something fishy is going on here. This whole thing is a charade. Things are not as they appear to be. So who put you up to this? Was it Joab? And the woman comes clean. Verse 20. In order to change the course of things, 
your servant Joab did this. In order to change your stance towards your son Absalom, that's why Joab made me do all of this. Now say what you will about his craftiness. But at the end of the day, Joab's scheme works. It works very well because David, he's trapped by his own verdict that he gave to the woman. He's now committed to this principle of forgiveness and pardon. And so David commands that Absalom be brought back to the city. Just as he commanded that the woman's son be pardoned and restored, so now he commands his own son to be pardoned and restored. And so Joab goes to Geshur and fetches Absalom from there. Remember that Geshur is the kingdom of his maternal grandfather, a Talmai king of Geshur. He's been living there as a refugee for the past three years. But Joab now brings him back to Jerusalem. But, but, verse 24, notice that David issues another command. Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Now that's a bit puzzling at first, especially in light of the first verse of the chapter. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. The ESV has, Now Joab the son of Zeruiah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now combine that with the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 13, verse 39, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. And you kind of get the picture from those verses that David loved and he misses Absalom, like he longs for Absalom to come home. Uh, the king's heart went out to Absalom. But if that's the case, then this whole thing is very strange for two reasons. Uh, number one, why would Joab have to go through this elaborate ruse to trap David into bringing Absalom home if that's what he wanted to do anyway? And number two, why would David then keep Absalom at arm's length, never see him once after bringing him home, if it really was the case that his heart went out to Absalom in that way. Something seems off here. And so we should note that another way to translate the Hebrew phrase at the end of chapter 13 is that the king's desire to march out against Absalom was spent. The king's desire to march out against Absalom, go to battle against Absalom, that was spent. And so presumably, David wanted to punish Absalom for killing Amnon. But over the three years that Absalom was in exile, that desire faded. And then verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, that then would be translated, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart was against Absalom. Listen, I don't know much Hebrew, but that reading seems to make more sense of the context. Right, like David, at the end of this whole Amnar, Tamar, Absalom situation, which ended with Absalom fleeing, he is against Absalom. And that's why in chapter 14, Joab basically has to trick him into bringing Absalom back home. And that's why, even after he brings Absalom back home to Jerusalem, he refuses to see him. He basically keeps him under house arrest. It's like, all right, Joab, you got me. You got me. Absalom can come back. But, 
There is no way I am allowing him into the palace. I don't ever want to see his face. That seems to fit the narrative's flow much better. But either way, even under house arrest, even barred from the palace, well, Absalom's back in Jerusalem. The prodigal son has returned. Joab's mission is accomplished. You see, things aren't always as they appear to be. And here we have a literal example of that and how Joab uses the woman of Tekoa's fake dilemma to essentially force David's hand to bring Absalom back home to Jerusalem. We have here what appears to be a widow's dilemma. But sometimes, well, sometimes things aren't as they appear to be in much more subtle ways. Look at verses 25 through 27. Uh, here we have this oh, kind of randomly placed, a seemingly parenthetical little bio here of Absalom. Why is this here? Well, let's read those verses again. And in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. 200 shekels, that's almost five pounds of hair. I mean, you realize how much I have to do to lose five pounds. It's like no carbs for a month. But this man will go get a haircut and lose five pounds. Life is not fair. Verse 27. There were born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. That's, that, that last line there, of course, brings our minds right back to the previous chapter. Right? Absalom's sister, Tamar, who was also described in the same way as a beautiful woman. Probably safe to assume that he named his daughter after his sister. But now, pretend for a moment that you don't know how any of this is going to turn out. Pretend that you don't know about the rebellion that's coming when Absalom tries to take the kingdom by force from his father. Pretend you don't know that Absalom's going to die in battle. Ironically enough, a victim of the same wonderfully full head of hair that's described here in such detail. Pretend you don't know that Solomon is in fact going to be the next king after David. Pretend you don't know any of that. All you know is that Absalom, right, Amnon the firstborn is dead. We have no idea what's going on with Kiliab the secondborn. He's probably dead too. Absalom is the oldest remaining son of the king. This Absalom has been brought back to Jerusalem and this Absalom is described the way he is here. There is no one more handsome no physical blemish in him at all. He is Mr. Perfect, and he's got this wonderful little family. You almost can't help but to think, this is the kind of guy who would make a great king. But then another thought creeps into our heads as we read this description. Because remember, First and Second Samuel were originally one book. And so, if we've been reading through this book... From the beginning, we come to this 
physical description of Absalom, this description of how handsome he was, we get this uncomfortable feeling that we've seen this movie before. And that's because we have. 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You see that? The author here describes Absalom just like he once described Saul. By his remarkable physical features. For Absalom, it was his flowing hair. For Saul, it was his imposing height. For both men, we're told that there was no one in Israel more handsome than he. And importantly, for both men, we're only told about their external physical features. We're never told about any inward spiritual vitality because, of course, there was none. On the inside, Saul proved himself to be a godless man. And Absalom, well, we've already seen kind of bits and pieces of it here and there. We're really going to see it manifest in the chapters to come. Absalom is a wicked, vicious rebellious, vindictive, impulsive, deceptive, double-tongued man. See, this description of Absalom, this is not just like a random parenthetical insert. No, it is specifically placed here as a foreshadowing. Not only that Absalom is going to end up a lot more like Saul than like David, but also that the people of Israel... Just like their grandfathers made the mistake of thinking that Saul would be a great king just because he looked the part, now they themselves are going to make the same mistake with Absalom, allowing him to steal their hearts. We'll get to that more next week in chapter 15. But for now, we have just a foreshadowing. And so here we have what appears to be a great king in Absalom. But again, things aren't always as they appear to be. Absalom is MSG in the sugar jar. Hopefully we as readers, we've already learned from our time in 1 Samuel that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That the heart, not outward appearances, that's what matters for true greatness. But we need to be reminded of that over and over, don't we? Because it's just our natural default to judge people by outward appearances. And that often leads to us making very poor judgments. And the people of Israel are about to find that out the hard way again. And so we have here what appears to be a great king. Things aren't always as they appear to be. And we've seen that with the woman at Tekoa what appears to be a widow's dilemma, but in fact is not. We've seen that with the description of Absalom, what appears to be a great king, but is not. Now we see it again in the final 
paragraph of the chapter with what appears to be true reconciliation, but it's not. Let's start at the end, verse 33. So Absalom came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. After five whole years of not seeing each other, uh, three years in exile in Geshur, two years under house arrest in Jerusalem, now Absalom comes to his father, prostrates himself before his father, King David, and David kisses his son in response. That appears to be true reconciliation. Indeed, the prodigal truly has come home. No longer is he held at arm's length, but now he's in the presence of his father. He is welcomed back by the kiss of his father. But there's more to the story, isn't there? Because this reconciliation, it doesn't come about because David's heart towards his son has drastically changed. It doesn't come about because Absalom comes to his father in humility, begging for forgiveness. Now, the reason this meeting happened was because Absalom simply couldn't stand the status quo any longer. Like, even though he's in Jerusalem, he's not allowed in the palace, he's not allowed to be with the king, he's not allowed to be part of any courtly functions, and so he's basically still in exile, just like he was in Geshur. At least in Geshur, he could freely roam about the palace of his grandfather, Talmai. That's what he means when he says... Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. And importantly, Absalom realizes that by being excluded from the royal court, he's essentially being excluded from any legitimate claim to Israel's throne. He wanted to be king one day, and this situation certainly is not helping. And so Absalom forces the issue. Joab basically ghosts him and doesn't return any of his texts, presumably by David's command. And so Absalom sets Joab's fields on fire just to get his attention. That is what gets him this meeting. There's been no change of heart on either side. It's just that Absalom's patience has been exhausted and Joab's field has been torched. Look at how in this meeting they don't seem to address anything. Father and son, they don't address what happened with Tamar. They don't address David's inaction towards Amnon. They don't address Absalom's murder of Amnon. They don't address the three-year exile. They don't address the two-year silent treatment. All of that is just kind of brushed aside, swept under the rug. And so father and son go through the external motions of reconciliation. Absalom bows before his father. David kisses his son. But without any of the true marks of reconciliation, humility, repentance, forgiveness, restoration. And so here we have what appears to be true reconciliation between David and Absalom. But again, we're reminded that things are not always as they appear to be. And so what might, at first glance at least, appear to be a happy ending to this somewhat strange saga here, 
Well, it's actually anything but. And it's only going to take a few verses into chapter 15 to reveal that. There's a massive betrayal that's soon coming. 2 Samuel chapter 14. We are in a rough stretch here in the life of David. Chapter 14 is no exception. Because chapter 14 is going to set up the rebellion that's about to come. One that's going to turn the entire kingdom upside down. But, in what's proved to be yet another dark, rather hopeless chapter in the life of David, we who know the whole story, we can still see glimmers of hope. And by the whole story, I'm not so much referring to the entirety of David's life, and I'm not so much referring to the entirety of the book of 2 Samuel. I'm referring to the entirety of the scriptures. Because in this story, you have what appears to be true reconciliation, but is so far from the real thing. You have a prodigal son returning to his father, but with no sincerity, no humility. And you've got a father allowing his son to come home, but he must remain at a distance. He is not to come into my presence. He cannot see my face. And that allows us, who know the whole story, who know that this narrative and everything in the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus, that allows us to marvel all the more at the true reconciliation that God himself accomplishes in the gospel of his son. You see, we are Absaloms. We are guilty. We're deserving of death. Deserving of banishment from the presence of the Father, in our case, with an eternity in hell, a suffering the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And we would be Absaloms, forever unrepentant and unchanged, except that in the gospel, God gives us new hearts. God initiates Even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, he regenerates us. He gives us new life. He grants to us the gift of repentance. He makes us into new creations. So that we would return to him with hearts broken over our sin, like a true prodigal son. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. When we come to him, ours is no gospel of partial reconciliation. Where perhaps God pardons us, as David pardons Absalom, but then keeps us at arm's length, away from his presence. Look again at verse 24. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Just imagine... If God were to say to us, you don't have to go to hell. Your sins are pardoned. You can be in the new Jerusalem, but you cannot come into my presence. You cannot see my face. That's not the gospel. Praise God, that is not the gospel. The gospel is one of full reconciliation. Accomplished entirely by God himself. 
by sending his son, Jesus Christ, not only to die for our sins on the cross, but also give us his perfect, righteous record. So that we would not only be pardoned of our sins, but be welcomed into his presence as his righteous children. Ephesians 2.18, through him we have access to the Father. We're brought into his presence. And so the Father runs. He embraces us. He kisses us. He kills the fattened calf to celebrate. For this, my son was dead, but is alive again. He was lost and is found. So that all who believe the gospel would not be held at arm's length from God but would spend the rest of eternity in his presence. Revelation 22. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And here it is. They will see his face. They will see his face. We who are his children will see his face in his presence forever. Friends, if you are not a Christian this morning, I want you to know that this gospel of full reconciliation, full, complete reconciliation, seeing God's face reconciliation, well, this gospel stands to save you today. You've sinned against the holy God, and there's nothing that you in and of yourself can do to change the judgment that you deserve as a result. But God has given his son, Jesus, to save sinners like you. You, by trusting this gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and rose again to truly reconcile you to a holy God, well, you can be saved today. They say you can't go home. That's not true. God invites prodigals like us to come home And as Jesus promised, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 2 Samuel chapter 14. We have what appears to be true reconciliation between David and Absalom. But it's not. It's far from it. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as unfathomable, as unthinkable, as unimaginable as it might be, we have what actually is true reconciliation between God and sinners. Things aren't always as they appear to be, but in this case, in the case of the gospel, they really are. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that in the gospel of your Son, You have not only pardoned our sins, you have not only forgiven us of our sins, but you have granted us the righteousness of your Son that we would be fully pleasing in your sight, that we would be welcomed into your presence, that we would have access to you. Father, for what is heaven but to be in your presence? Father, we long to see your face. We long to be in your presence. We pray. Lord, for any in this room who do not know you, or that you, Lord, would uh, 
save their souls even today by this gospel, this glorious reconciliation that you have accomplished. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.